Welcome to episode 229 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Maybe we need to rethink this episode. Oh, man. See what oh, I did there? Man. That was very punny, Jesse. It's very so punny. good. So we're we, still... We should, in... uh, we should reset and take that from the top. <laughs> that was actually... I didn't anticipate that. That was better than the pun I tried to make. Nice. Yeah, that was really good. So we're talking about, in some ways, one of our favorite topics, which is renewing our minds, rethinking or thinking, and how many times we talked about this in the course of all these conversations we've had. But we're doing it this time in the context of David Murray's book called Reset... And so we're in chapter six, which bears the title Rethink. And we're going to get there. But of course, before we do, it's definitely time for affirmations and denials. It's been a week since I've talked to you, and I think we probably have some good affirmations and denials. Yes. Why don't you start us off with uh, dealer's choice of an affirmation or denial? I'm going to go affirmation because I think that my denial might be a little intense. Like to quote Samuel L. Jackson from Jurassic Park. Hold on to your butts. So I'm going to go with the <laughs> You're affirmation deep for that first. Reference. You like that? Yeah, I'm going to go like with that, the affirmation yeah. first. Actually, for me, this is all like thematic. So the affirmation and the denial are intimately connected, but they're on opposite ends of a spectrum. But this is easy for me this week. I'm affirming with a slender little volume from the great Puritan Sibs called The Tender Heart. And nice. I picked this up, a copy of this up. It's like so small and yet so beautiful and so jam-packed. You can read it in one sitting. In fact, you probably should. But the profound thing that I found in this work, as only Sibs can do, you know, the so-called sweet dropper, is that he basically talks about the necessity of the Christian life having a tender heart. That, of course, this is a work from God. But what I find so contemporary is he juxtaposes this idea that what we don't actually need is a broken heart. That broken hearts, broken things are actually not of that great value that we seem to place a lot of value on this idea of being kind of laid waste. But what we need is the heart that is pliable and amendable. Yeah. And so that's really his central thesis. I don't even want to say any more because I just want everybody to go out and grab a copy. You can literally read it in an evening and I think it should be consumed all at once. It's lovely. So just like so many Puritan works, it's approachable. It's beautiful. It gave me a lot to think about in terms of pairing that against John Owen saying, you know, like always be killing sin. But the question is, how do we do that actually? Yeah. And is there a place in which we're relying too much on the wrong means or the wrong center point from which to draw the power to kill that sin? And I think Sibs does a really great job of answering that in this book, The Tender Heart. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, uh, it's a great book. It's been a long time since I've read it. I should, should revisit it. I'm, I'm with you on this one. Yeah, it's so good. I don't know. It's like really, really short. And yeah. yet it still doesn't lack for an amazing impact. Like I, I and sometimes we always give like the heart to the Puritans a hard time because we say things like they use a lot of words and they did. They wanted to pack everything. But here's an example of where it was just right. And like yeah. it didn't need anything else. It was a perfect length. So just go grab it. I think you can get it both on Kindle or obviously you can pick up a physical copy, but it's, I don't even know how many pages it was because I read it on Kindle, but it was enough that I could read it in an evening. And then you just kind of sit back and you're like, wow, that was so good. And I have so many things to think about in my own life. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's probably, I, I'll have to double check. It's probably available for free on monergism.com if I had to guess. That is a place I should have checked first. <laughs> that would require us to do some advanced preparation though. That's factually correct. So how about you? I mean, do you want to switch it up and like basically oscillate back and forth between affirmation denials or are you going to go affirmation here? No, I'll, I'll be traditional today. So I'm, I'm affirming, <laughs> uh, you know, it, people have listened over the last maybe two months have noticed that Jesse and I are on like the quest for the the one productivity app to rule them, rule them all Always. And in the in the darkness behind them. Um I found a, a new way to take notes. So this is like the welcome to the Reformed Nerdcast. So if you are a listener of Reform Forum, and if you're not, then why aren't you? Uh, you'll probably notice that Camden has been doing book reviews lately. And his most recent book review that he did was on a book called How to Take Smart Notes. And I'm in the, the very first chapter of this, but the the premise of the, the note-taking system this guy's proposing, I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it's in German and that just that's not good for anybody. But basically it's this it's it's a note-taking system where it's discrete units of thought. And wait, then wait, each, wait, 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 wait. Does this start with an R by any chance? No, it's a Z. Ah, yeah, 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 that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know so what you're So it's about. discrete units of thought. And then each of those units is linked to at least one other unit of thought. That's how this note-taking system works. And it it um, it sort of forms almost like a synaptic web, like a network yes. of ideas. And so I've been I've been reading that book and I as I was starting to try to figure out how do you how do you actually do this, um, I came across an app called Ample Note. Now, Ample Note is uh, if you remember, I recommended a, a little note-taking software or app called Bear Notes, which automatically created like a like a hierarchy. Um, what I didn't like about that is that all the hierarchy chatter made your look your notes look really like stupid and terrible looking, hard to read. Ample Note does something similar by making cross-linked notes. So while you're typing, or or how I'll probably be using this is I'll type up a note that I'm using, and then I'll have some sort of review process where I go back through to kind of categorize my notes. You put double brackets around stuff, and that creates a note. So like if I type um, affirmations, and then I put that in double brackets, it's going to create a note and then link this note to that note. Then if I go back to that note, all of those, any note that has a link to that is listed as a backlink. And so basically what ends up happening is as you're taking notes, it creates um, a, like a, a catalog of cross-referenced notes. So it takes a little while. I just started using it yesterday. It's going to take a little while and I haven't finished the book yet. But what, what's going to end up happening basically is you'll have this catalog of cross-linked notes that that you can look at a topic. If, you know, Every time I see the word Trinity, I put that in brackets. All of a sudden, there'll be a note that says Trinity. I can click on that. It'll show all the different all the different notes. So it's it's not a free app. I believe it's like five fifty a month. So it may not be where I finally land with this note taking method, but it's very cool. It's 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 got a lot of interesting features to kind of check out. So it's called Ample Note. You can get a you can get amplenote.com or ample.com amplenote.com. Uh, and I, they do have a free trial available, so if you want to check it out, you can. Um, there's other similar kinds of note-taking apps. There's some note-taking apps that are specifically designed for this note-taking method. Um, but the guy who formulated this note-taking method, basically, uh, if you read this book, he wasn't trained as an academic. He went to law school, but then he went into public service. 
and then he um he did like an interview with somebody and the guy was like you should become a sociology like you should come be a sociology professor at this german university and the guy's like i've never done a doctorate but then he's like well i've got all these notes together so he just synthesized his notes into a doctorate in less than a year um and he produced i think he he wrote like 60 different books and numerous articles and and all of this was basically came out of this sort of neural web of concepts that he was maintaining at that time in like a card catalog. Um, but he, he didn't do a lot of traditional research. So for someone like me who is working on trying to do research and papers and things like that, but it isn't really like in professional academia, I'm hopeful that this will kind of help make some uh, productivity jumps. So check it out, amplenote.com. The book that I'm reading is called How to Take Smart Notes. Um, the guy's name isn't in English. It's not an English name, so I'm not even going to try that. But it's How to Take Smart Notes. Uh, there's an umlau, which is always fun. Uh, but check it out. It's 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 interesting <laughs> stuff. It's pretty intriguing. What a time to be alive. My earlier enthusiasm when I interrupted you was because I just came across this very same thing, but obviously from a, di a totally different entry point. But yeah. I just came across it this week. And yeah. it's amazing to think that somebody has gone through great lengths to produce information and then to put it online to just talk about the art of note taking. Yeah. So it's just wonderful to see that like every knowledge base, speak about rethinking, every knowledge base that we have, you can kind of spend some time doing a deep dive into it and get better at it. Right. I want to take some better notes, but across like all areas of my life. And so I'm definitely going to look into that. So I think that is a phenomenal recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. Amplenote.com. I love it. I mean, we, you and I, like we said, are always interested in, I think how to be more fruitful in the things that we do. And it's again, like we talked about with respect to this book, it's not necessarily because we want to take more pride or want to accomplish more things, but want to live more in a, in a more balanced way. And so by being able to take better notes for me, that's a way I, I'm, I'm slowly getting to this point, which I should have gotten to a long time ago in my life, which was this encapsulation of the cliche, like working smarter and not harder. Right. That this idea of like, just try to throw yourself and exhaust yourself in any given thing is not necessarily what promotes like the highest degree of learning or the best retention. And so all these like little tools, some people call them life hacks are right. in some ways understanding how God has created us to be. And then trying to use technology in such a way that it complements the way that God has created us to learn. And every person learns in slightly different ways. And yet he has given us basically a holistic or super adjacent structure in which for us to engage in information and material. Part of that is the word like we've talked about. Right. And I think this kind of thing is, I hope people will go and check that out because I think it at least help, forces us to think about how we process information. And there's something lovely about that. Like there's something yeah. about, I want to read the scriptures and retain as much as possible. And I want to be able to fully invest myself in it. And this is not to disregard the work of the Holy Spirit. It's merely to say, what can I do in so much as God enables me to make sure that as I pray through the scriptures, as I read them, as I study them, what techniques can I be using that would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that most efficaciously? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So, so just a real, for people who might be struggling to sort of conceptualize what this might look like. So... The most simple kind of use case that I can think of off the top of my head would be if you take sermon notes for a year and you, in, in every place that the scripture is referenced, you turn the uh, book and chapter into a, uh, into a double bracketed note, you will eventually have a way to look at any given chapter of the Bible 
and then see all of the places that it's been quoted or referenced in a right. sermon in the last year. So you can you can use it, and then you can expand that to be like, all right, I'm, I'm also going to take the time to put in the Westminster Confession into this system, and I'm going to put all of the proof text in for each question. And now you've got a whole comprehensive list. So basically, as you, as you work on it, it's building... In some ways, it's actually replicating the way that your brain makes connections, but it's externalizing that into some sort of system that does it automatically for you. So, which is interesting because I'm watching Age of Ultron right now. Well, not right now, but was before this. So maybe maybe I should stop because I might be creating some sort of e- super evil uh, theology AI on accident. That's possible. I honestly can't speak to that at all. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of <laughs> speaking of moving on. What are you denying today, then? I like that you just breeze right past. <laughs> We're not going to touch that. It was well done. Very well done. So this is in the spirit of the opposite a reaction that I had to the Tender Heart. So I read the Tender Hearts recently, and then I heard something, and this was, um, I'm going to try to protect the innocent here. This was something that I'd heard by way of kind of like an interview, but it was also as part of like a larger context. And it made me think that it's possible that there's something in my own life that I didn't recognize that's present and is potentially dangerous and is a little bit pernicious and maybe is shared by others besides me in the reform community. So I am denying against chronic cage stage. So mm. we've often talked about the fact and, you know, reform people within the family reform at the tradition where we can make fun of ourselves and be a little bit self-deprecating. We talk about this idea of cage stage as When, if for the first time, or perhaps even for the first time, you're introduced to Reformed theology and become so enamored with it where there's almost like a visceral response and you think to yourself, why isn't everybody thinking the same way I am now that I've learned this? And therefore, you can just go over the top and become a menace to the people whom you love because all you want to do is try to convince everybody to see the same thing that you've seen. And it occurred to me in the course of listening to some things this week that this thing actually continues to happen, but we know it by different names or make it derivative. So right. let me give you an example. I've seen recently some Reformed people speak as if maturity of the Christian faith, which as we're about to talk about, should really be based on character and composition and transformation, be more or less associated, whether they mean it or not, with the degree to which you've been exposed by different materials in the Reformed faith. One of those things, and this is triggering for everybody, is, for instance, confessionalism. So it's as if like sometimes we presume that basically our understanding of our foreign faith and, and by extension what it means to be mature in our Christian faith is on a continuum where we're, exp- when we're exposed to more things, when we've read more things, when we seem to understand that these things actually exist, that somehow that in and of itself and sometimes by itself moves us into greater maturity. Right. And that's what I'm denying against. That is yeah. a form of cage stage. It's chronic cage stage because it begins the same type of judging that happens at the beginning, but in a way that gets clouded as, well, really what I'm saying is I just want people to move to a greater degree of maturity like myself. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is some of, I would say the deepest, most loving, most closely following Christians I know are not necessarily reformed. It's like when Paul says to the Gentiles, like the law written on their hearts has become a law unto itself. This practicing of going after the scriptures and having an experiential understanding of theology is the thing that actually breeds and promotes this sense of like profound maturity. Now, 
I'm not saying that we, it doesn't matter if we get it right. I think we've gone on record in saying you must get it right, that that's the whole point of studying theology. Right. What I'm saying is I've seen this insidious kind of connection where at some point, once you get it mostly right, I'm using these terms very loosely, sometimes Calvinists and Reformed people tend to think that there's increasing marginal returns. That, okay, if I go to the next, the next idea and the next idea after that, somehow that's bigger and more efficacious and more profound than where I started. And I'm saying that's not the case at all. And we ought to right. be really, really careful about that because I think as we're about to talk about, maturity should not be confused with your, your understanding of certain principles or whether or not you've, let's say, read all the confessions or whether or not even you're quote unquote confessional because all those things you could hide behind. And I think sometimes we do hide behind those things. And so we end up in chronic cage stages of yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, um, I don't think anyone's going to dispute from our perspective that maturity in the faith and an increasing confessionalism don't go hand in hand, but you're right that they're, they're not a one-to-one -one correlation. So, so it is entirely possible. I know all sorts of people, actually this, this ties into my denial here, but I know all sorts of people that can quote and can read and understand and know the Reformed confessions, but are not not very mature in terms of their faith and in terms of how they interact with other believers. So I think you're right that uh, we can certainly hide behind confessionalism. But I also think, in general, um, maybe maybe let's put it this way: I think some people think that being confessional or appropriating the confessions makes you mature, like it drives you towards maturity. Yes, exactly. I actually think that in most cases maturity actually drives you towards confessionalism. So it's actually a, like a, a reverse relationship because right. as you become more, one of the hallmarks of a mature Christian is that they start to have a more, more and more of an appropriate view of their own, their own self. They have a more robust view of th their own sinfulness, a more robust view of their own shortcomings of their limitations. And that when properly appropriated will drive you to seek the wisdom of the church, which finds its fullness in the creedal and confessional tradition that we, we hold. So I'm, I'm with you. I think there are a lot of cage stage confessionalists out there uh, that, that go beyond cage stage Calvinism. And now they've become cage, cage stage confessionalists. Uh, and that's, that's definitely not cool. Yeah. And that's maybe like the nuanced and, particularly triggering part of this denial is that what I'm saying is I'm willing to take it to the extreme that it may in fact drive you to be aware of the confessions, but it need not be that way. Right. That in fact, if what we're after, like we talked about in reform preaching is this real true sense of experiential understanding of Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul says like, I endeavored to know Christ and Christ crucified that that is enough. And that right. if all you did was set yourself headlong into obeying the scriptures, to processing what they mean, and then to putting them into practice in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm actually less concerned of whether or not you even heard of the confessions, because the, at the end of the day, that is a person that's wholly devoted right. to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to be. So as we're about to get into this chapter, that's, I think, some of what we're going to touch on is what David Murray is calling us into is this kind of self-awareness and this self-evaluation that is outside of the things we might be exposed to and almost is outside of the things that somebody has articulated for us, that we're not going to broker that responsibility to somebody else and then try to appropriate it as our own when we might not have had the same experiential relationship. So this is a hard truth. And I, yeah. again, I, I stand it up against what Sib said in this tender heart 
because I'm seeing that some people use this as a way of saying, well, these people haven't yet arrived because they haven't yet gotten to this point. Right. And the point that they're judging on is exposure to certain principles and theological statements, which even if they are true, and oftentimes they are, of course, I'm speaking of the confessions, it does not negate the fact that unless they are appropriated in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, that all of that is meaningless and that we really shouldn't be judging it in those terms. So that's my rant because <laughs> I'm, honestly, I'm seeing that a little bit more. This It's not yeah. even... I'm not saying that people are hiding behind it in like a nefarious way where they're, they're purposefully trying to, you know, like steal people's joy or like try to create some kind of false sense of who they are. It's just that it's easier sometimes to gravitate toward those things and then to more or less judge people on whether or not they've arrived at being, having processed or read these things or thought through those things. When I want to say, as David Murray's about to, that's not how you ought to be basically rethinking about who you are. So right, right or wrong, that's where I'm at right now. Nice. nice. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, are you, so here's the thing. Is your denial as intense this week or? Um, I think my denial could have been <laughs> as intense, but for the sake of keeping our, keeping our show moving, I probably will ratchet okay. down the intensity a little bit. So, I, I'm denying what I like to call, and I invented this term yesterday, so I should say, I shouldn't act as though I've been calling it for this thing for a long time, but I'm, I'm calling this doing theology by insult. And and what I'm, I'm thinking of a specific scenario, a specific interaction I had uh, online on Twitter, um, and basically what happened is some somebody, I'm not going to use his username because I, I don't really know this guy. It's just some dude on Twitter. But basically he uh, called out a podcast. The podcast he was calling out was the Theocast uh, and, and said something more or less uh, along the lines of like, these people don't have, this is a paraphrase, but th- these people don't have any place for preaching holiness or preaching, exhorting, exhorting to holiness in their, th- in their, their theology, um, which if you know categories is, is saying they deny the third use of the law, right? The first use of the law is to convict sinners. The second use of the law is to sort of govern and structure society by restraining sin. And the third use of the law is to call Christians to holiness by showing them a pattern of, of righteousness, right? So, so more or less they said, uh, can you believe these guys? They deny the third use of the law. So I said, would you have a specific example of an episode in mind? They referenced an episode and I said, well, do you have a specific quote in mind? Because I, I've talked to the to, to some of the people who've been involved with Theocast. And I know that sometimes it may sound like it a little bit, but but they don't deny the third use of the law. And this this guy, I've had interactions with him before. And his first response was like, man, you struggle with reading comprehension, don't you? Well, well, no, I, I don't struggle with reading comprehension. Um, and, and I say this as someone who's engaged in this before. There is a certain flavor of internet theologians or, or armchair theologians, whatever you want to call them. It's not just internet people. People do this in, in the regular world too, who rather than actually engage with the co- like the conversation at hand, instead resort to things like insult, insults to sort of posture themselves into a, a place of superiority. So when I said to him, do you have a specific example in mind? Cause they don't, they, as far as I've talked to them, they, they don't deny the thirties of the law. Instead of saying, well, can you clarify? Because I wasn't talking about the third use of the law. Instead, he basically said, oh, man, you're such an idiot. I never said anything about the third use of the law. Well, all that did was say to me, like, this guy doesn't really care to actually have a conversation. So 
I've done this in the past. I think most of us who've engaged in some sort of online discussion forum have done this in the past. It's easy to do. And sometimes sometimes you do want to say something like, man, I, I, th- I feel like maybe you're misreading what I'm saying, or it seems like maybe you're, you haven't studied the prerequisite sources. Sometimes that comes up. But this was just an insult. Like, I'm not a stupid guy. I don't struggle with reading comprehension. If anything, I actually was understanding the issues at hand better than he himself was, because what he was saying was clearly a reference to denying the third use of the law. Like it, it was a classic objection to their particular flavor of, of reformed theology, which I think emphasizes sola fide a little bit to the exclusion of uh, the need for holiness, but isn't, it's not heter, it's not heresy or anything like that. Um, but it, it doesn't forward the conversation at all. All it does is basically go look at how big and macho I am. Look at how bold I am that I can just shut you down by being insulting. It's just posturing. So just, just don't do it. Don't do it. Like there's a difference between calling out when someone is ignorant of a situation or a topic or when, when someone really is not, doesn't have an appropriate mastery of a topic to engage the conversation. That happens a lot when we're talking about EFS where people, they don't understand the basics or even, even some of the more fundamental stuff about the Trinity. So they, they are engaged in category confusion. So it's okay to call out and say, I really don't think that you've studied this enough to, to understand the issues at hand. That's different than basically just being like, man, you can't read, right? You're so stupid. You can't even read. It just doesn't do any good for anybody. So I'm denying doing theology by insult. That's fair. It sounds like we have a little bit of a common thread in this idea yeah. of posturing, right? Like the sense that like some kind of outward expression or some way in which I want to promulgate my sense of superiority over this right. interaction or bring some kind of sense of judgment or hierarchical understanding to how we order ourselves, whether in conversation or yeah. in our degree of maturity or spiritual knowledge. These things are just like so dangerous. And yeah. it not only, it just doesn't have any place in the Christian ethic. You know, this is the thing that makes me sad is I, I sometimes question whether Twitter, Facebook, any of these so-called social media venues are really the best place to have this conversation, but right. the intent behind them is so important. Like if you want to have that genuine conversation, like if that person want to have a genuine conversation with you, then by all means, like have it in, in over right. Twitter, right? But also don't have it right. if you're really not after trying to understand right. and to have a mutual exchange of ideas or like a respectful dialogue. I, I think that just the anonymity and the degree of separation so much play to our basic sinful desires yeah. that I struggle with whether or not, I mean, I never really do a lot of interaction on social media anyway, but that's mainly because I'm not sure that I, I really trust myself because my proclivity would be to get upset yeah, and then to be obnoxious. <laughs> so yeah. I'd, I'd rather just not, I'd rather try to avoid that, but it's hard for me even to understand and to assess my own shortcomings and then to have fidelity to say, I'm not going to break the standards that I myself create. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the way that it ties into your denial is my very first interaction with this guy, which I've now got him on mute. So my interactions will be limited. But my very first interaction with this guy was that he uh, was responding to something I said, where I kind of cited the Westminster Confession. And and I, like there's different interpretations of the phrasing of the Westminster Confession. That That's sure. fine. But his his response was basically like, uh, you're an idiot. I can't believe you think this. And when I, you know, I asked for clarification or when I summarized what I thought he was saying, that was when he brought up that, well, you seem to have reading comprehension problems. Um, so, so this guy, at least according to his Twitter profile is an OPC guy. 
uh, he he seems to at least on one level know the, the confessions well, um, but he still seems to think that the the appropriate response to disagreement with another Christian online is to insult them and belittle them before you even know who they are or or have asked a single clarifying question. And the, the end result, if if you want to shut down conversation, you don't really want to engage. This is really effective because instead <laughs> right. of instead of saying, "Can you clarify what you just said?" or "I think you might have misunderstood me," here's here's what I actually meant, and then us having a, a good conversation going forward, it just ended the conversation. So so there just was nothing left. And contrast that with somebody who I I interacted with online a couple of weeks ago who asked a question about covid restrictions and said i understand i understand there's the the government has no authority over us position i understand there's the render unto caesar and do whatever he says position i don't understand what the middle ground is and i said well here's the middle ground and we had a, a really good conversation that was helpful multiple people have messaged to me privately and said this conversation was very helpful help me understand the issue better um, it's certainly possible to have those kinds of conversations on twitter or facebook uh, but it really does take both partners in the conversation really uh intentionally being overly charitable and right. trying it's it's hard it takes a lot of energy it takes a lot of time to be able to formulate your thoughts and distill them into 280 characters which is in itself is a good exercise um, and then you have to be able to ignore the trolls who want to jump in on your conversation right. and try to disrupt it, who have nothing right. to do with the conversation. So if you can't do it, that's fine. But just don't do the theology by insulting. It just isn't it's not helpful for anybody. I mean, that's I mean, one could argue that that's oxymoronic anyway. Right. right. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think I mean, I, I know what you're saying. I would say that, like, I would add to that this idea of like this is where our testimonies actually matter. Like this, again, is like so if you want to signal devotion to Jesus Right. Then really here's where it happens because this is like Philippians two put into practice, like, which is eternally contemporary, like have this mind among yourselves, which is right. yours in Christ Jesus. And that mind is the one that looks not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I think what I struggle with is I know that like, I'm so tempted to act viscerally to re in response to things. And I've tweeted things even recently where somebody's come back at me and I want to be like, oh my gosh, are you serious? Like that's yeah. obviously like that, not what I meant at all. And they're, they're trying to be a little bit antagonistic and a little bit provoking. But this idea of, are we really seeking humility in our interactions? And are, like you said, it's not being overly charitable. Like the minimum standard is charitableness in our right. interactions. This is what Christ requires of us. And especially among Christians, this is what marks us out as people who might disagree, especially on open-handed issues. And yet in unity, find ourselves under the family where the head is Christ himself. And the interaction is flavored with this beautiful salt and light in love. And right. it's especially demonstrated there. It's just remarkable to me that we can't get to that point, but I, re I recognize that I'm part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's easy to do. And like I said, I've, I've done it before. It's, it's part of the reason that I'm not active on Facebook anymore. We talked about that a little bit last week is that I, I recognize in my own, uh, my own personality and my own shortcomings that I do have this tendency to sort of lash out to lash out at people online. But I've, I've noticed since I sort of pulled myself off of Facebook 
these kinds of things, there's almost like a detox that happens where this kind of in this kind of interaction would have just been normal, normal practice for me right. to, to deal with. And I probably would have responded instead of trying to defuse the situation. I probably would have responded by trying to be more, be more insulting than he is. Right. You're going to insult me by, you're right. going to do theology by insulting me while escalate. I'm better at theology. I'm going to escalate it. To, you know, instead, after I took a little time to detox, I look at it and I'm like, this is just fruitless. It's pointless. Yes. And, and I'm not going to spin my wheels with someone who clearly doesn't want to have a conversation. And if they do, then I'm not going to give them what they want because what they want is to have this back and forth, you know, slug fest. I'm just not interested in that anymore. So that's not to say that I, I, I have arrived, right? I'm not perfect. I still, I still throw the occasional jab out there once in a while. And I, sometimes you got a jab, like sometimes it's appropriate to take a little bit of a jab <laughs> at somebody like that. That's important sometimes to sort of sort of put someone in their place when they're, they're posturing, you have to posture back. But, but this was just, it was just out of nowhere. So, so just denying this whole idea that being insulting to people and to, to shut conversation down by being rude and, and hostile and aggressive, it just, it's just not really the way it goes. I mean, Jesus took jabs at people. Like he, he took appropriate, holy jabs at people, right? The, the, uh, the, the Pharisees were like, yeah, well, you're, you're a Samaritan half-breed. He's like, well, yeah, but your father's the devil. So right. like sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to kind of like approach the situation with a little bit of sarcasm. Like, that's fine. I'm not saying you can't do that. But this idea that we do theology primarily and sometimes almost exclusively by trying to make the people who hold a different position look stupid and foolish and immature, which is, is where it ties yeah. into yours. Yeah. It just, it just isn't the Christian way to go. That's not maturity. Um, Right. Even when you do think someone is stupid, it's not going to help them for you right. to just treat them like they're stupid. There there are people that aren't just aren't intelligent out there. Like that's a fact of life, but treating them like they're stupid and then acting as though somehow that makes you a superior theologian or a superior Christian, yes. that's just not the way to go. Yeah. It's like we have in many ways the same denial. It's like two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. It's very similar. So yeah. but before this will be the last thing before we move on to the chapter for this week's discussion. Let me ask you this question. It's of like a quantitative nature. What portion of social media theological interaction do you think is don't answer the fool according to his folly? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think that depends on how you want to parse out that that passage. Because I don't I don't think that we should I mean I don't I don't think uh yeah, I could get way theological on that. I know, I know I, you could. Give me your gut reaction. I think a lot of times we 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 engage in conversations that are fruitless because one of the things that's true about Twitter, Twitter more than Facebook, but also Facebook or or Gab or whatever the newest we 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 or whatever the newest social media thing is. <laughs> I used to call that social media. Every once in a while, someone would be like, "Join me on MeWe," and I'd be like, "Weepy peepee." Yeah. Anyway. Uh, I think for the most part, it's not really discussion. It's people just wanting to make their voices heard. Of course. It's not so much about a conversation. It's about exactly. a broadcast or a platform. Uh, but the, the actual genuine times that you're interacting with people, it's got to be a lot. There's a lot of times where you, you hammer your head against a wall that's not going to move for a really long time. And then you just you, you realize, man, I should have cut ties on this conversation like an hour and a half ago or, or four and a half days ago. Well, so, I had so, like a marathon six-day argument with Leighton Flowers one time, and I was like, uh, why did I do that? Why? Yeah. Why did I do that? This probably had so. greater entertainment value for those who are watching than this. Yeah, that's true. All right. So let, then let me flip it because I'm really curious. Like, so in terms of like authentic, helpful, like that you cited a conversation that was actually profitable. What percentage of the time are we talking about? Like two, maybe 3%. <laughs> 
I mean, that, that's why if you look at the way that our, our Reformed Brotherhood social media like footprint is, yeah. is, is it's not, it's not for the most part, it's not conversational, right? It's here's a, here's a quote from a confessioner. Yes, here's a summary exactly. of a confessioner. Here's, here's a thought I had after I read this chapter of a confession, kind of putting it out there. Right. There's very little that I do online. That's really like a, a genuine conversation because that's just not, it's not what social media really is designed for. And it's not, especially Twitter is not really productive for that. It, it just, right. it's not designed for that kind of long conversation, trying to do back and forth replies. It really like just from a technical perspective is really hard. So yeah, it's probably like it's less than 10% of, of interactions are actually like fruitful conversation kind of interactions. Oh, that's so great. I, I want to press you on that because I think it's helpful to quantify that. Just give people a sense for what you're talking about and how we're thinking about it. And yeah. when you said like maybe 2% was profitable, you were actually lower than I was, but I was going to say like probably 90% yeah. is don't answer the fool according to his right. folly. So we're, right. we're pretty much aligned, but isn't that wild? Like if, we, if you and I are just going to like, you didn't know I was going to ask you that. And I just thought about it as you were talking. It's amazing to me that we both have some sense of agreement of like the basically magnitude of what we're talking about here. That should help us rethink yeah. a couple of things oh, about how we interact. I see what you did there. Yes. You like that? I so, see what you did there. That's a good transition. It Jesse. is a beautiful transition. Listen, you don't get to episode whatever this is. I've totally already forgotten the number. <laughs> Without having some great segues, speaking of mature segues, so we're still in the midst of uh, David Murray's book, and I want to say something about this, actually. The title of the book is Reset, and as I've been thinking about Reset and this chapter, Rethink, I thought, again, how lovely it is that our God is one who provides us with reset. Like, who yes. doesn't in their life at some point, maybe even every day, in some ways, want to start over, start fresh, have a new beginning. So it's lovely to me that that's exactly what God does for us. And so I love this chapter where he's, he's really challenging us to think differently. And for me, it starts with this idea where he says, and I want to quote him. He says, if the most important question in the world is who is God, the second most important question is who am I? Right. Our answer to that question about our basic identities, the way we think about ourselves impacts everything in our lives, end quote. And he's not speaking... I would say purely like anthropomorphic, like, man, I just lost that word entirely. Like in terms of like <laughs> anthropology here, I was going to say anthropomorphically, but um, it's more about how do we understand our principal identity in life? And here's something that might seem again, deceptively simple, Yeah. but he goes to great length to really unpack this and help us to wrestle with it. Yeah. I mean, this chapter... I got it. I got to admit, like when I started reading this chapter, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's, I feel like that's been my experience with almost <laughs> all of these chapters right. where it's, it's like he starts off with something that's so like deceptively simple that you're almost like, yeah, I'm just going to skim this chapter. And I think in, in most circumstances, I probably would have skimmed this chapter, but since we're doing the show, I actually read it in depth and then you get into it and you're like, whoa, this is, this is right. pretty this is pretty significant. Heavy. And, and basically what this chapter is about, you know, we started off with with sleep, right? Like the, the very basic thing that a person needs, right? Obviously we have to eat. Obviously we need to drink water, but like we have to sleep. And then we moved on to like, all right, you got to get your body moving. And like as we progress now, we were talking about things that get a little bit more abstract, a little bit more esoteric. And now we're thinking about Part of why we're so stressed out all the time, part of why our, our lives suffer burnout is because we're kind of constantly on this treadmill 
and and we're um it's like we're on a treadmill but it's the wrong treadmill for us it's like or or we've got the treadmill on the wrong setting for us it's like i'm trying to learn learn how to how to be a, like a sort of a moderate runner right well well you don't just get on the treadmill and, and crank it up to like eight miles an hour and think you're going to do anything except fall on your face and that's kind of what this chapter is is like if if i jump on the the treadmill and i think i'm using bolt like I, i'm gonna get i'm gonna get a rude awakening and, and in some ways, this chapter is saying like we have to we have to sort of like reorient. I, I'm trying so hard not to use the word reset all the time. <laughs> we have to reorient ourselves to who we actually are right. in order to move forward in a healthy fashion. Um, it's kind of like, um, you know, if I'm I don't know if you have you ever had that experience where you you're you're driving somewhere and you take you you all of a sudden realize that you're you're driving to somewhere different than where you're actually driving. Yes. Like maybe you're distracted and you you think you know you're going to the grocery store, but your grocery store is sort of similarly pathed to where you work. And and without thinking about it, all of a sudden you're pulling into the parking lot at your job, and you're like, "Why am I at my job? I was trying to go to the grocery store." It's kind that's kind of what he's getting at is our self identity, our our concept of who we are in terms of, of our life history, how we define ourselves, what things mark us out as, as who we are, that will bring us to a destination. And so part of this chapter is getting that, getting that identity correct, getting, getting a, a proper understanding of we, who we are, because who we are and who we think we are, those two things have to match or it's going to drive us to a different destination than where we actually want to go. And that, that, um, that, disperse disbursement disparity between who we are and who we think we are that disparity is part of what contributes to burnout in our lives is kind of what he's getting at in this chapter yeah in many ways it's like this con continual like recapitulation on in different elements or in slightly different ways or with, maybe with different entry points and understanding exactly what we said like who we were created to be and when we can kind of get into that mode where like we're in the pocket of our existence, which is actually profoundly difficult to do because right. they're not only distractions, but they're these countervailing influences telling us who we ought to be or who we think we should be, that these things pull us away from center. And he is trying to pull us back to that place where everything is in balance. It's in balance because we're living in the way that God has ordained us to live. The thing that I found most convicting, and this again goes right back to my whole denial, yes. is he writes basically that it's, it's easy, and this is not something new to any of us, in the Western world in particular, if he said, like, if you just read a list of the things that you are, more than likely in the top five is going to be what you do for a living, like the actual yes. physical activity you take to earn money. And I don't think that's news to any of us, especially in the Western culture, we're going to say, of course, that's what comes to our mind. What we do for a living is oftentimes how we associate who we are yeah. as people. What I think was really convicting is he says, uh, and I'm going to quote him again. We talk about reordering priorities. He says, that's a problem. And the problem he's speaking about is this sense of vocational identification. He says, that's a problem for a number of reasons, not least because God defines people first of all by their spiritual state yeah. followed by their spiritual character. End of quote. When I read that, that is not necessarily a new statement to me, but it hit me like a ton of bricks because everything all of a sudden for like almost like just a split second got stripped away. The sense of it doesn't matter what you've read, doesn't matter how well you're spoken, doesn't matter how many podcast episodes you've done. What really matters at the end of the day, like most explicitly, is like the fruit of the spirit manifested in your life. If you can't yeah. look over the past week 
and point to something where you say, this is spiritual maturity because I see the act of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life and how I've ordered the things that I do and how I actually behave. He's basically saying like, that is the state, that is the character by which you should be really judging the quality of your life. It's it's one thing to say you are a Christian. It's of course another thing to be a Christian. What you believe is not what you say you believe. What you believe is what you do. All these cliches came to roost in that single moment, yeah. encapsulating this idea of spiritual state and spiritual character. Yeah. Yeah. You know, th- this chapter for me was kind of an eye-opener because I think we do have—we have this tendency, um, as you stated, to identify ourselves by whatever our particular vocational call is. And— even not even just our vocational call, whatever we happen to be doing for a job at the moment is, uh, is how we define ourselves. But I think in, in theological circles, in, in Christian intellectual circles, we tend to identify ourselves by our, our denominational affiliation or our confessional affiliation and those things, and there's value, right? He, he's not saying, uh, I just want to read his list. So one of the things he encouraged, uh, people to do. I I did not do this. I've done this similar exercise for other kinds of things, but th- he said you should start by writing a list of words that describe you. And so he recorded he recorded his list, and this is in the order that they came to his mind, right? So this is him I'm quoting him. He says, I've recorded them in the order that they occurred. Preacher, pastor, professor, sinner, productive, father, husband, son, brother, Christian, skinny, good soccer player, principled, impatient, Scottish, introverted, reliable, reformed, ill, technophile, political junkie, caring, a warrior, a worrier, warrior, not a warrior, a worrier. Those words are strikingly similar. Tired, independent, family-centered, and a failure, right? End quote. So there's a few things that just are interesting off the surface. Preacher, pastor, he's distinguishing those two things, right? Right. So, so doing this exercise will, will not only give you an idea of, of where you sort of draw your most fundamental identity, but also it will show you things where you may be separating things that you, you don't realize you are, right? I, I would love to spend an hour trying to parse out why it is that David Murray separates preacher and pastor, right? Because in my mind, like those two things are the same thing at least in part, right? So th- that's, a, that's a major rabbit trail. But what I, what I think is, is clear is that a lot of times in intellectual circles, we define ourselves by these characteristics. Right. And rather than, rather than use like the term Presbyterian or Baptist or Lutheran or whatever denominational title you want to use, rather than use that as descriptive of, of you, you're using it as definitive of you. Sure. And, and the distinction I want to draw out there is, right, when we talk about um, we talk about Presbyterians, in in the best possible use of that that way of talking, what we're using, we're doing is we're using that label to describe a person uh, based on w- what positions they hold theologically. What the danger is is we can uh, we can sometimes, put the horse before the cart, the cart before the horse. We want to put the horse before the cart. We can put the cart before the horse. And instead of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to describe myself with this term. Right. We then we, instead we say, All right, I'm a Presbyterian and being a Presbyterian means a, B and C. Yes. And I'm not C. So what I need to do is I need to get C. I need to be C. And so, so that might be someone who says I'm a Presbyterian, uh, but they're not convinced of cessationism yet. 
right? Well, cessationism is a Presbyterian position, and, and I think it's the correct position, but adopting the, the cessationist position because you're a Presbyterian rather than being described as a Presbyterian because you're a cessationist, that's the wrong way to go, right? We should only adopt a position like that because we believe it's biblical. Right. Any other reason that we would adopt such a position is is not biblical. And so I, I think I think we can sometimes do that in broader areas of our life, right? So I, I'm, I'm an employee of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, right? That's where I work. Um, th- that's a true statement. I am an employee of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. Well, all organizations have some sort of concept in mind of what an employee of that organization is, right? In most places, it has certain kinds of ethical standards, certain sort of behavioral standards, certain kinds of dispositional outlook standards, right? There's there's certain things. Or maybe, maybe you'll get broader. I'm a New Englander, right? I'm not actually a New Englander. I'm a Midwesterner. Although I would say I'm a New Englander at heart because my disposition has always been more like a New England disposition. But that comes along with a lot of different things, right? New Englanders, are they have a reputation of being sort of hard-edged, right? They're sort of gruff. They don't necessarily interact with strangers as much. They don't always, like, smile and wave at strangers on the street. It's a funny story. The, one, of the, one of the first times I brought uh, my wife, your sister, with me to Minnesota, we were in the line at Starbucks, it was the 4th of July. I remember this distinctly because it's such a funny story. And, and you know, we're in the line. We had placed our order, and we were sitting at the window waiting for the, the girl at the window to bring us our coffee or whatever it was we ordered. And she was just making conversation, right? She, she, she looked at me. She's like, oh, do you, are you going to a party last night? Are you going to go watch the fireworks? And then we pulled away, and your sister was like, I cannot believe that that girl was hitting on you right in front of me. And I said, what do you mean she was hitting on me? And she said, well, she was asking what you were doing later. And I was like, oh, no, no, she's just being friendly. That's just the Midwestern way of being. So Midwesterners have a reputation of being friendly and outgoing, and they, they, they make conversation with people they don't know. New Englanders have a reputation of being a little bit more withdrawn. They don't necessarily make conversations with people they don't know. Well, it's very easy for someone who defined, is defined by being a New Englander but has a disposition to be outgoing to all of a sudden be like, well, I need to be less outgoing. I need to be right. less likely to greet strangers on the street. That's the wrong direction to go. And this creates this sense of burnout because you're constantly fighting against reality to try to force yourself into this cookie cutter that you think you belong in. And that he, he spends he has a couple examples that he uses of people who've created this identity for themselves. And it's things you wouldn't expect. Right. Some some one of the examples. I don't know if this is a real example. He did at a workshop or if he made it up. But it's a guy who's defining himself by the fact that he had committed adultery with it on his wife, right? He had he'd committed adultery, and now he forever defines himself as an adulterer. Well, on one level, it's true that he's an adulterer. But on another level, we're all free in Christ. We've all been cleansed in Christ. And so, so the same way we don't want to define ourselves by A, B, or C sin, this person defining themselves as an adulterer actually sets themselves up for failure going forward. So I think part of this chapter is just saying, like, we need to have a sober look at what it is that we are defined by, not necessarily how we define ourselves. And I think... You know, if if people land one thing out of this episode and one thing out of this chapter, it is that our identity is in Christ, right? When the Bible says, when Paul says that my life is hid with Christ, my life is hidden with Christ, what that means is that all of the things down here, all of the things going on, 
they're real. It's not that they're fake. The fact that I'm an employee at this organization or, or, or company, the fact that I live in this region, the fact that I, I have or have not done such and such a thing, I do or do not believe such and such a thing, all of those things are real. But all of those things are subservient to our identity as those who are called, that we're chosen, we're called, we're justified, we're sanctified, we're going to be glorified, we, we are sons and daughters of God. All of those things that come with being God's people have to be our primary locus of identity. And if they're not, then we get all out of whack in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I think part of the way in which we get out of whack, like you said, is all the other manifestations you talked about, like physical, emotional, spiritual. Right. I like what you said about fighting against something. And I, I think there's something there. Like, obviously, that's a very Romans 1 concept that we're fighting against God. We're fighting against the way in which God created us to be and to live in constant harmony with him and with our brothers and sisters. And so in that realm, what struck me with what you just said was this idea that we really need to understand, of course, how God created us, but we need to make that like the primary identity. Right. And that this is a little bit difficult because it does require some sense of like self-reflection. And at the same time, it requires us to forsake all other alleged or supposed truth, except for what the scripture teaches us. And that I think is a constant battle. I mean, it seems to me that like we have to, as Luther said, like constantly be preaching the gospel to ourselves, of course, but in the midst of that message is this idea of that we are, as he said, like simultaneously sinner and saint. And so we have to be careful about over accentuating what has happened to us or what yeah. we have done when God himself has allowed a method of forgiveness and uh, sanctification that brings us into, in some ways, like a shadow of the harmony that he originally intended, a shadow of what is to come, but is nonetheless real. And that that is like profoundly different in shaping the direction of how we do things, like just how we do stuff in life. Yeah. And that's a big deal. And I think it's easy for us to just kind of pass over that and say, well, these are great intellectual ideas. And of course I ascribe to them or give assent to them in that intellectual capacity. But beyond that, what does it look like? I mean, what does the Christian look like? to live where they've rethought everything. And yeah. the idea, of course, of rethinking something presumes that you've thought about it incorrectly. And so like there are pernicious lies that are embedded in the way in which we live. And they're not just lies that come from as if we can blame Satan himself for somehow infiltrating our minds and pushing us in a direction that we ought not to go. But it's that our sinful nature, now once compromised, needs to be totally re-undone, regenerated. But that regeneration is something that we go through day after day after day with respect to how we process information, yeah. how we understand who we are, and kind of circling back around. I mean, I think that we've... We would all say, maybe not all of us, but if we've thought about this for any length of time, we might say, well, I recognize there could be a danger in self-identifying in one way when that identity could be taken away from me. That's the thing I worry about. So if I had to be totally honest with you, one of my greatest fears is like losing my mind, literally losing everything that I've acquired, my memories, the knowledge yeah. that I've gained. And yet, you know, so much of us wrap who we are in the experiences that we've encountered, even like philosophically, you'll find people saying, well, we are our memories. But the thing is, there's so many people, unfortunately, in our world who have Alzheimer's or suffer with dementia or suffer with memory challenges. And how do we reconcile then the person that they are with who God has created them to be? And who holds them in a status of identity when all else fails? Is there someone or something bigger 
outside of the physical capacity of them to understand who they were or what yeah. they've achieved in life. Do, do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and I think, you know, as I think about this and as I thought about this after reading the chapter, I think that this is, just bear with me here because this is kind of a weird transition. Um, the way that we classify things is important, right? And when we talk about animals, right, we talk about genus, kingdom, species, subspecies, right? We have this taxonomic way of thinking about things. Well done. And, and one of the things that happens is the broadest category is the biggest category, right? It's, it's the one at the top. And, and everything in that category shares something. There, there's a relation between all of those things. And I think sometimes, sometimes what we have to do is we have to recognize the broader categories in order to understand where we, where we are and, and what we are. And, and the example I would use is like if you have a fox and a wolf, right? A fox and a wolf, outwardly, they share a lot of things, but there's also a fair amount of things that are different. But, but the, the fact is that they all kind of roll up to the same group on the grand scheme of things. And, and I, I guess what I want to, what I want to land again is the, and this goes back to your, your denial is we all fall under the category of Christian, right? Th those who are called by Christ, those who are chosen by Christ. And, and that is the identity that I think we really need to land. Like, I, right. I think we, we just have to, right. like I said, if, if anything else comes out of this chapter, great. But the one thing that has to come out of this chapter absolutely has to in order for us to move forward in this process of resetting that David Murray is, is pushing at or is, is driving us towards. It has to be grounding our identity in Christ and Christ right. alone. That is not to say that other elements of who we are are not real, right? And and where I look at this is like a, a fox and a wolf may look at each other and go, we're very different than each other, right? We're, we're, we're different species. We're in a different genus. We're in a different family. Like you have to go a fair amount up that, up that line before you actually get to somewhere that they're in common. But the, that, that thing that's in common is so foundational and fundamental to what they are that it actually sort of overrides all the differences in a lot of ways. Right. Um, it, it, I had this funny experience where I was, I was, um, actually it happened last week when we were talking about, um, what rest does, what, what recreation does and what relaxing does to your brain. We're talking about how they study in mice what solitude does and it recreates or it causes cells to grow in the hippocampus. Right. And the thought that I had was like, man, it's so crazy that we use mice to study what happens in humans and that we can test, we can test in mice what happens in humans or what, what happens with solitude. And then we can replicate that in humans. Well, the reason for that is because for all of our differences between mice and humans, theological things aside, for all of our biological differences, the fact that we're both mammals makes it so those fundamental aspects of our brain and the way that they function are the same. And actually, I think you probably would probably would go even higher than mammals on the hierarchy. And the point is that I may look at my Lutheran brother or my Anglican brother or my Pentecostal brother or my... Methodist or whatever, my Anabaptist brother, and be like, man, we're so different. We're so different. But in reality, we're so much the same. Right. And th that's that's where it is, is that we we look at ourselves 
And we go, well, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this thing, I'm that thing. But when we look at our fundamental identity as Christians, everything else that comes underneath that is almost so particular that it's irrelevant, right? The, in certain regards, the fact that a fox and a wolf have different, um, different genuses, that their genetic code is different, that the things that make them different species make them different species. And the reality is that like, if I'm trying to, to figure out what's causing a sickness in a wolf, for the most part, I could actually use a fox to test my theories. Um, that is important. And that's where we have to get our identity because that's how we move forward. If I'm trying to diagnose the issues in my life, I'm trying to diagnose why I'm suffering burnout. If I'm trying to diagnose why I feel like I'm, I'm wandering aimlessly in this life, right? Sometimes that's something that happens to Christians and they, they bounce from career to career and they feel like, oh, this career is not honoring God. This career is not honoring God. Well, you need to go a step back. You're a Christian, right? Everything you do, it needs to be in service of the Lord. Right. Right. Everything you do is a holy vocation to the Lord if it is done unto the glory of God. So, so that kind of move to sort of step up the hierarchy, step up the, the taxonomy of who we are, this is a little bit of a different direction than he even takes it. But to, to go further up that taxonomy to a more fundamental definition of who we are, that's going to help us move forward and to identify and to diagnose and to address issues in our lives. And that's where I think we get it wrong is we flip those priorities. We flip those, those hierarchies. The fact that I'm a Christian is not actually more definitional to who I am than almost anything else in, right. in, in that taxonomy, right? I'm a human being. I, yeah, I guess that might be more foundational than the fact that I'm a Christian. Maybe, I guess, maybe. But he makes the point that like, you have to have this order, right? You're, and how your order works is going to drive your decisions. If you consider being a father to be more foundational than the fact that you're a husband, that's going to drive your decisions. It's going to mean that you, practically speaking, favor taking care of your children over taking care of your wife, right? If my foundational identity is that I am an employee of such and such an organization, and that is somehow more foundational than the fact that I'm a Christian, that's going to change how you how you prioritize the activities in your life. One of the things I think that's happening in, in our world right now is there's this, this idea of patriotism and Christian nationalism. And we have Christians who have reversed, I'm getting all political now, I shouldn't do this, but who've reversed that order. They're defining themselves as Americans with a particular political mindset, and they're putting that in front of their Christian commitments. I'm not, I'm not thinking of anyone specifically, but a lot of the people who attacked the Capitol identify themselves as Christians. Something had to have gotten out of whack if you think that that's okay and you think that that is somehow the right way to go. And I would argue that that out of whack thing is probably your fundamental identity, what you consider yourself to be and the order of that taxonomy of how you classify yourself. That's driving our behavior in ways that I don't think we always understand. Incidentally, I was recently on a run in a very like just local suburban neighborhood that I live in. And uh, it was early in the morning, maybe like before seven o'clock. And as I rounded a corner, a dog crossed the street. And my first thought was like, cause I love dogs. I was like, Oh, look at that puppy. And then I was like, Oh, that's not a puppy. There's no <laughs> leash on that. Thing. And yeah. it was a, uh, it was a wolf. And yeah. so like, it's just, I think that's, 
actually not super germane to what you were saying, but I just love that you associate it with wolves and coyotes. And I was like, oh, that happened to me recently. And foxes, which I recently actually saw and had to chase away from our uh, trash can. But I think you're right. I mean, I, I hope that people will understand that like the whole purpose in us having this like little book club is not necessarily to like summarize everything that's said in each chapter, but you know, we talk around a lot of things as we've read them and processed them. And I hope that this will just be like a little bit of a foil or an invitation or just a taste and a mousse bouche, if you will, for people then to go and read the chapter, because I think we all need to process this stuff. And the worst thing we can do is trick ourselves into thinking that somehow, because this seems simple, that's not worth investing our time in. Like the whole point in many ways of Jesus's teaching is to make the plain things the main things, the main things to be the plain things. And again, we can virtue signal, we can fool ourselves, and we try to move beyond that without understanding those things first. I'm not saying that it's not helpful, of course, to really invest in theological understanding such that it leads you to actually true doxology. But if we find ourselves kind of skipping over that and just going into more knowledge yeah. without the kind of thing that's actually transformative, and of course, to make this go all the way back in a full circle, this idea that anybody could be cage stage is so weird. And we've all been there because really the true essence of reformed theology is this wonderful pairing between the sovereignty of God, the beautiful systematic nature of the scriptures, which in many ways can be summarized, but of course still maintains its mystery. And at the same time, part of that mystery is that God would choose even me, that yeah. there's nothing that I've done. There's nothing I've acquired. There's nothing I've understood that hasn't happened because it's been by the mercy of God and not because of any great thing that I've done or the place in which I was born or where I lived or how I grew up or my mental f facilities or capabilities. So I think this idea of rethinking what it means to be us. And then in addition to that, how you prioritize your understanding of your identity is super helpful. This is yeah. the kind of thing that really does change us on Monday morning and propels us forward in a way that's obedient to Christ and is making him the first priority. And then all of the things, all our relationships, all our conversations online or in person, all the things that we do, it helps to shape them in a way where they're centered. They're not exhausting to us. But as you said, we're no longer fighting against something, but we're moving along with God. Yes. Yeah. And maybe just as to put this, put a, a, a super clear, I hope, note, like a, a punctuation point on this. If our fundamental identity is that we are a child of the living God, right? Then our primary need is always to seek the favor and assistance and, and, and presence of our heavenly father. Right. If our primary identity is anything else, anything else, then, then we are going to end up seeking other things to fill that need. And, and here's, here's the example that I would use, right? When you look at the taxonomies of a wolf and a fox, when you, you go up, you go up the, I, I'm really hung up on this for some reason, but <laughs> it's, it's a great example. I think, I think maybe I'm just not making any sense, but when you go up the taxonomical scale, you get to a point where you see both of them are carnivores, right? So, so I see this animal. Let's pretend that I'm blind. I don't know anything about this animal except it, somehow I know it's taxonomical, it's taxonomical structure. I'm trying to figure out what, what does it need from me? What does it want from me? Well, if it's a wolf or if it's a fox and it's hungry, I know that it's of a certain class of carnivores. So I know it wants meat. It wants to eat meat, right? So, so if, if we follow that same logic, when I go up the taxonomy of a Christian, ultimately what a Christian wants and needs 
is is the heavenly father. That's what he that's what a Christian wants, right? The word of God, man does not live by bread alone, but thy word of God, right? So so we have to get this right. Because all of our other needs, everything that's going to flow out from 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 this point forward in our in our process here, all of this has to be constrained by and governed by and understood in the the context of this fundamental identity question that David Murray is encouraging us to ask, right? And th- there are other things like as a, as a husband, I need and want and have different priorities than someone who is not a husband. As a employee of a particular organization. I work in a healthcare field. You do not. There are different requirements and different demands on me than there are on you during a pandemic because I work in the healthcare field. I would venture a guess that my employer is more strict on what I can and can't do, where I can and can't go, and what I can and can't expose myself to than your employer probably is, right? I would guess that my reporting requirements are different than yours. Maybe I'm wrong. But but that the principle is our identity drives different aspects of our life. And the more the more accurate our own self-image of ourselves is, then the more of a realistic understanding of what it is that we need as we do this quote reset process, that's going to be really important. And there's that's the reason why this is such an early chapter. Right. I think some other people who wrote this book, if this was not in a a Christian field, they might have put this identity question further down the line, right? They might have put it after all sorts of other stuff that he's going to cover. But we have to get this right. And like I said, the, the one thing I want people to walk away from, all the other identity questions are important. They, 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 they drive certain important questions and certain important answers. But this, fun, this foundational identity as either a child of God or not a child of God, we cannot miss that. We cannot miss that because it is going to inform and drive everything going forward. If, if I'm a child of God, my primary, my primary concern is not my own life because my life is hid with Christ. If I'm not a child of God, then all I have to look out for is my life. Right. Right. That's where we get the martyrs. I mean, there's all sorts of implications that come out of this that I think are are, would be interesting to explore if we were doing a seven episode deep dive on this chapter. But we are not. Right. And there's no doubt that this is the kind of conversation that we want to have together. That's why we're reading this book in community, while we're inviting you to join us again to reach out by getting a copy and leaving us a voicemail. And so one of the ways I want to encourage everybody to do that is if you go to reformbrotherhood.com, in the upper right-hand corner, there's this little link called Join the Brotherhood. I actually think you have to scroll down first before you'll see it, but if you scroll down, you'll see Join the Brotherhood. If you click on that, because I'm narrating in real time as I do it myself, first of all, you'll see what could be perhaps the most amazing heading of all time, which says, the Reformation just got a whole lot better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Join yes. the Reformed Brethren. We're, we're not too proud to say it. And there's six ways that we list there where you could join us. And there's a couple of things. You could jo- you could uh, join the uh, join, subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, but one of the ways in which we see some reaching out to us and really supporting this mission is by becoming a regular donor. And they do that through this website called Patreon. And I just want to acknowledge those who, again, who have done that. We're thankful for everybody who supports yeah. us. And that support is so broad and so wonderful. And so I want to especially reach out and thank Brother Justin, who became a Patreon supporter this week. And I laughed out loud because he sent a message along with his financial support, which is really a gift to us, a gift to increasing 
the breadth and the scope of this podcast, helping to co- us to cover our costs, which we're so thankful for. And he said that he appreciated the show, except, except, this is important, I guess, for the one time when I threw some shade on Spencerian cursive, which I think is like going way back. Like that's a deep cut, brother Justin. You're, you are a loyal <laughs> listener because I don't even remember what I said at that moment. And I want to say that I'm so appreciative of brother Justin's gift to us financially. And at the same time, there was this sense that I want to just say, listen, I love cursive. Like I'm, I'm all, I wish I could write better in cursive. I think maybe what happened there is part of my bias is that I'm left-handed by nature, the way that God created me. And there is this definite bias against like left-handed people being able to like write in calligraphy and write in cursive or learn those things because oftentimes you won't get taught because you have to be right-handed because of like the smudging, all the nonsense. So I'm sorry about the Spencerian cursive thing. Totally support cursive. Cursive is beautiful. (laughs) I'm just (laughs) laughing at how, how uh, apologetic you are about this cursive. I don't even remember this. I, I remember I brought it up as it was either in the, it was in the context of affirmations or denials. And there is some lovely books on like how to, I love this idea of like returning to like really flowing, wonderful, like the English representation of like the language in cursive form. I, so to me, it's like romantic. It's beautiful. I, I find like lettering artistic. And so this idea of Spencer and cursive is wonderful to me. And yet I realize I'm bad at it. I don't remember exactly what I said, but when I got the message, I was like, Oh my goodness, I have done a horrible wrong and I need to apologize. (laughs) Yeah. Well, all of that to say, thank you to all of the people who donate to us. Thank you to all of the people who are, um, thank you who are involved in various ways. Um, you know, whether it's a person who wants to financially contribute to the show or a person who just contributes by sending us an encouraging email or Thank sending you. us an encouraging uh, Twitter uh, message, DM. I don't know, people who want to slide into my DM. I, is that a thing? I don't know. Um, we appreciate all of the assistance that we get because this show is not just Jesse and I talking on the microphones, right? The Reform, right. Well, I suppose the show is just that. The Reform Brotherhood is far broader than just two two white guys talking on a, on a couple microphones on the internet right Th- this is a community that is growing around what we talk about there are people who have conversations in our facebook group that honestly Jesse and I aren't even involved in we we hardly ever even look at and yet the the, the community keeps growing so if you want to donate if you want to contribute to us fin- financially after you've had it you know you've fulfilled your obligation to your local church you yes. can check us out on patreon if you want to, if you have a question you want to ask us, you can call our voicemail at 60, uh, 607-444-2767. Bros. You can email us. You can hit us on Twitter. Uh, probably not Facebook because we don't look at Facebook, but uh, we're happy to we're happy to get those emails. And we we look at every email. We listen to every voicemail. Yes, everything. And, you know, we're we're getting back into a regular routine where we're doing episodes that are based on voicemails. But we have to be honest. Like sometimes our voicemails. They're a little bit light. We can't do those short question casts right. that we used to do because a lot of the questions we're getting, uh, they're long questions. They're hard, complicated questions, which we love. But we also would love if we got a couple people who called in with questions that you think we could answer in 10 or 15 minutes. Now, I know 
uh, our 60 minute podcast is now coming up on like 75 minutes. Uh, it's funny. Jesse asked earlier what percentage of, of my Twitter conversations uh, were a fool answering, answering a fool according to his folly. I would like to ask Jesse, what percentage of our show do you think was affirmations and denials this time? <laughs> I have no idea. It was north say- of 50%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah yes. Yeah. yeah. But. All of that to be said, if you think that we can realistically answer your question in 15 minutes or less, please call the voicemail and ask us that question. We would love to get back to doing those question cast episodes where we do really short kind of quick yes. hit answers on on questions you have. But if you have a more in-depth question, we've got an episode coming up uh, this month that that is going to be a doozy. I'm excited about it. We've been planning it sort of since Christmas, uh, or I should say since midwinter no season. That was based Actually on a correct. voicemail. So we would love to get more of those. So please call in, send us your emails. Um, but we love all the support we get. We love all of the interaction we get from people. Uh, and and we, we love doing these these shows. So thank you for your support on Patreon. Thank, thank you for you. your support in other ways. Um, yeah, I, I'm rambling now. So Jesse, please rescue no, me from, okay. from this Th- body of Thank you. Of thank you so death. much. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters. Well, until next time, and that time will be coming sooner than you think because this episode has gone on longer than you thought it would. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. 